The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Alliance Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to Garage Mahal and welcome back to another episode with the Rebel Alliance Media. We're here to bring you another wonderful podcast and as always with you are Pooty and P. Nate. How are you feeling today, man? I feel great. It's spring is finally here. Yes. In Canada, that's a huge deal for us. Yep, it is. It's that's thawed. true. I can yep. get some of the books that I left outside back because you know, they're <laughs> no longer frozen. That's a joke. I don't do that. Treat your books well, people. Um, feeling great. How are you doing? I, I'm good, man. It's been a, been a long week, but happy to be here. Happy to be recording. Happy to be with you and with our unsung hero, Dave Wetsy Wetlaufer. Um, so we're here recording and uh, we are the Rebel Alliance Media. We're here to help you engage culture with a biblical worldview. If you want to uh, continue to follow us, you can find us at rebelalliancemedia.com. You can find us on any podcast catcher. Make sure you subscribe. And if it uh, gives you an opportunity to review and, uh, and rate, do that stuff for us. Engage with us on Facebook. So find us at Rebel Alliance Podcast. Uh, on Facebook and where else? I mean, Spotify, Google Play, we're on all, all those all things. Those so things. just find us somewhere and say nice things about us. <laughs> say good things. The, the key there is the say good things part. Yes, please do that. Please or, do that. Or flame us completely. We just want nothing lukewarm. Yeah. We want one if of the If you other. are lukewarm, we will spew you out of our mouths. But hot or cold, we gladly accept. We will spew you out of the mouth, but very much appreciate the like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very true. Very true. Um, so we're here and uh, we are, we should also say we are uh, members of the Berean Media Network. So uh, you can find us at the Berean Media Network uh, page on Facebook. And uh, we're a group of podcasts that uh, push each other's content and help sharpen one another. We all kind of do our own thing. We have the, uh, the front pew that kind of looks at things from a pastoral perspective. Layman's Cup that uh, uh, kind of uh, four guys just having some conversations around theology uh, while enjoying cups of, I was about to say adult beverages, but it's a, coffee is an adult beverage, but it's not what normally people think of when they say adult beverages. Depends really what you put in the coffee. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Because <laughs> I'm not sure what Kevin's putting in it. But. And, then, uh, and then our buddies, the Two Thieves, um, who uh, are really uh, delving deep into theology and doing their Covenant Theology series, which I've been enjoying immensely. So that's us. We are the Rebel Alliance. Make sure you find us on uh, wherever you're listening to this and engage with us. And we love hearing from you. Uh, we got uh, some emails this week. I actually had an e- uh, a uh, person email me this week, email us, email the Rebel and uh, he was looking back all the way to, I think it was like our third or fourth episode where we did the pastor's draft. Do you remember that? It was episode five. Episode five. Okay, so Jesse Boggs sent in his uh, dream team. So if he was in our pastor's draft, he said, uh, he would have taken Tim Chester, 
D.A. Carson, Kenneth Gentry, Nick Needham, and Zach Eswin. Eswin? Practical. I recognize that name, but I can't actually picture who that is. But anyway, the rest of them are, are super solid. Kenneth Gentry is solid. Tim Chester and D.A. Carson. Um, yeah, so anyway... Appreciate uh, him going back and listening to some of the older episodes. They're a bit painful maybe to get through, but... Uh, I, I still feel like my team wins. Yeah, the homeschool conference? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know you do. I know you do. The, what were you, what are you, the white bus conference? Yeah, the that's white bus like, conference. That's good. right. Um, there'd be so many white buses in the parking lot of whatever church you were holding that conference at. Um, so we are uh, also just uh, right in the middle of uh, the truth apocalypse. So we're going to keep going with that. But before we do that, we have just a couple of news items that I think are worth getting to. Uh, Chris, I got to ask you, do you follow Kanye West on Twitter? <laughs> I don't follow him on Twitter. Mostly because I don't want people to go to my followers and see and that I follow Kanye West. Yeah. But I'm, I do try to keep up with what's happening. Yeah. So have you been keeping up with Kanye West and... Keeping his... up with the Kardashians? Is yeah. that how we would say that? <laughs> Possibly. Our likes just went up by a thousand for saying it. Just for saying it? And it we probably owe them Google money. Search, yeah. We probably owe them money now. Um, so Kanye West has kind of set Twitter ablaze. Um, he, I mean, he's got like you know, 30 million followers and Kanye West um, recently kind of blew up the Twitter sphere by saying a few things, um, including getting pictures with, you know, um, his Make America Great Again hat that was signed by Donald Trump. Donald Trump actually retweeted it and said like, cool, bro, or something like that to Kanye. Um, but the big thing is that he's been... Um, He's basically been tweeting out cons- cons- some conservative things. So not just the support for Donald Trump, um, but he's been uh, retweeting some Thomas Sowell. Um, he was retweeting some conservative uh, media outlets. And uh, it, it, it was just, it's, it's interesting. Uh, he also got in trouble on TMZ for saying that 400 years of slavery was choice. <laughs> so, you know, he's still crazy. <laughs> actually, speaking of the fact that he's crazy, People Magazine actually have... I've tried to give him an excuse for all of this. Okay. Um, this is just the just the day. They about an hour ago they released an article that basically said that uh, Kanye West, who recently revealed that he's on medication, apparently has stopped taking his medication. That's why they suspect that he's doing this. So they can't say that he just changed his mind. Right. He's like off his meds. <laughs> because if you're conservative, you're, you're obviously crazy. crazy. You're clear. Yeah. Oh, this is so good. So, I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of stuff that he's been saying that's been rough and awful. I mean, 400 years of slavery being a choice and kind of, um, so that's interesting. Um, it's, it's funny. So he also retweeted, this is just going back a couple of days ago from when we are recording this and he put, uh, this is so helpful. I'm always a student. I'm learning about love. And then he, uh, uh, basically tweets out a picture of his iMessage and it doesn't say who it's from, but it says, uh, it quotes first Corinthians 13, um, four to seven, you know, love is patient, love is kind. And not that like non-Christians haven't heard that at a zillion weddings, but it's just interesting. So he's, he's, you know, tweeting out, um, uh, you know, pictures of, of scripture. And like I said, and also, um, retweeting Thomas Sowell and, um, some Ben Shapiro stuff. And you're like, 
this is a blind squirrel finding a nut, right? Like, you know, the, the saying, like, even a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes. Um, I heard somebody say that about Kanye this week, and I thought, yeah, that, that's, that's what it is. But it's kind of neat to see that people are going to be exposed to whatever he's retweeting. So it's just interesting. And like you said, the spin that, like, the media and various, like, talk shows and other celebrities immediately equate conservatism with, with craziness is interesting. Very. Even though the Kardashians have denied that as the case, by the way, but I just thought it was funny. That he's off his meds? Yeah, they said no. He just has a strong opinion. So it's just, it's just funny. It's funny the... It's funny that the the left, I don't know what else to call them in yeah, America, yeah. Has, gone, has gone so far to the one side that, like you're saying, anybody who even offers an alternate opinion, it's not even a valid thought. It's not something to, de- to debate. It's simply... They're crazy because they disagree with what we say. Right. And it blows my mind. Right. So, and um, I mean, there's there's some interesting things that he's throwing out there about like perpetual victimhood and not everybody's a, a victim. victim. And um, so it, it's just, it's interesting. Like the, the, the funny thing is, is that he's said so many dumb things over the years that um, he nobody really takes him seriously anymore. But... True. You know, you hope that some people who maybe are living in the echo chamber of, you know, the weaponized victimhood of the day and all that kind of stuff um, kind of g- maybe maybe get shaken up because they're finally seeing a celebrity who's maybe saying some of the things like not everybody's a victim. And and, you know, some of, you know, the horrible things that are happening in your life might be your fault and, <laughs> and things like that. Um, it's just it's it's interesting. So maybe some good will come of it. But. I wonder if his like got woke card got revoked. Must did he have a got woke card? I just I, I just assume. Well, the reality is is that the the less culturally woke you are, the more woke you are in terms of our friends at Awakening Reformation podcast. So, so you're always on a spectrum of wokeness. There's, there's, <laughs> there's woke either gospel spectrum. wokeness or there's like culturally appropriate wokeness, PC wokeness. All, all we're seeing, we're just seeing celebrities start to start to come around. First Snoop Dogg, now Kanye. Yeah, there you we're go. taking the hip hop game by storm. Yeah, yeah slowly but surely. <laughs> Jay Z's next. But surely. Think so? There you go. Uh, okay, so um, that's uh, we just wanted to touch on that because it's hard not to talk about Kanye when uh, things blew up the way that they did. Um, it, it's interesting, actually. Did you see some of the um, the Donald Trump uh, taking credit for um, bringing North and South Korea together? Do you see some of this stuff? Um, I mean, it is. It's again, it's interesting because I, I watch a couple of people on my Facebook and uh, my Twitter feed who I know, like just friends of mine or whatever, who are super liberal who are posting about guarded optimism about this, you know, potential truce between North and South Korea. And it's, it's pretty interesting because, I mean, for all of his craziness, you know, Trump suggesting that he has a bigger nuclear button than Kim Jong-un and, and things like that, the phallic reference to the nuke button on their table, um, you know, despite the craziness that is that, um, he did have something to do with this. And, you know, time will tell how, you know, whether or not this is some sort of real thing or there's some sort of power play going on. Um, but Trump did have something to do with this. And it's going to be interesting to see how, again, the left or, you know, the the, the liberal uh, media slash Hollywood slash whatever um, react to 
I mean, if true, I mean, if this is actual truce between North and South Korea, I mean, it's, this is monumental. I mean, for decades they've been, you know, going at it. So yeah, it's 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 huge. It'll be very interesting to see when people remove the celebrity of Trump. Yep. Away from him and all the stuff that goes around him, all the just stuff people don't like about him personally, which we're not we're not fans of him personally. But it'll be Definitely interesting not. to see 10, 15 years from now when people look back on events like this today. And if this lasts, we have no idea if it yep. will last. But if it does, we look back and we'll see the role that he played in, in these types of things. And it'll be interesting to see how people judge him. Right now, because right now, like like you're saying, we see a lot of people with guarded optimism and just saying, well, Trump, Trump's taking credit for something that happened. But they had no they had, we have no problems when Obama, say, for instance, takes credit for something he does while he's in office. He is the president right. of the United States. So whatever role he played in this, he can take credit for. Right. So it's just is very is just a very interesting double-edged sword that he's not allowed to take credit whereas you know a democrat could so right so anyway lots going on in the world today um but uh, as always what's uh, going on in uh the uh uh in the heart of god's people and uh in the church and in the word of god is far more important so we're going to take a break now and we're going to come back uh and uh today in the truth apocalypse we're going to talk about a lie that we think has infiltrated the church uh, to a, a very large degree, and that is the lie that God's law has nothing to say to the New Testament Christians. So we're going to come back after the break, and we're going to talk about that. Coming May 18 and 19, Friday and Saturday, the 2018 Corporus Conference with guest speaker Jared C. Wilson. This year's theme is the Gospel-Driven Church. Just $40 for all four sessions, or if you're a student, it's half price. The conference location is West London Alliance Church in London, Ontario. Check out all the details and register at corporis.ca. That's C-O-R-P-O-R-I-S, corporis.ca. The Rebel Alliance podcast is about discipleship, bringing the gospel message about how to interact in a biblical way with your family, friends, coworkers, and your culture. Would you like to be a part of this? Rebel Alliance Media is looking for financial sponsors. A one-time gift, a monthly donation, whatever you like. Contact the Rebels at info at rebelalliancemedia.com. That's info at rebelalliancemedia.com. Welcome back. So before break, we talked about the fact that today we're going to be talking about theonomy. Um, it's a big, big term for, for people. Um, what we are really saying with that is that we want to talk about the lie that the Old Testament law has nothing to do today with the New Testament Christian. Right. What would you say about that? Well, so you introduced the term theonomy. So the, the term theonomy just essentially means God's law, right? It's taking the words theos. Uh, and logos and and theonomy, uh, so God's law. And uh, I think it was uh, uh, Van Til, Cornelius Van Til, who said that uh, uh, there's no alternative but that of theonomy or autonomy. Um, and so what he's essentially saying is that every ethical decision assumes some final authority or some standard. 
and uh, that will either be self-law, which is autonomy, or God's law. So whose law do we consider? Like by what standard do we um, allow ourselves to be governed and ruled? So the idea of theonomy is just that God's law is still um, abiding. And so today, you know, when we're looking at the truth apocalypse, this idea, and, and I think this is a prevalent one, that most Christians would say that the Old Testament law either pointed to Christ or was for the nation of Israel. And so they would they would divide the law into three portions, the, uh, the civil uh, laws, which were about governing Israel and how Israel as a, govern, as a nation would be governed, the ceremonial laws, which were all the um, sacrifices and that sort of thing, which all pointed to Christ. Both of those, all those laws are um, now cast aside because in the New Testament, um, you know, we, we don't, we, we're not under that anymore. And then they would say that the moral laws, things like don't covet and don't steal, those things are all still good. So we should be under those. So they, they divide up the law into three portions and they say, we're going to completely get rid of the civil law and the ceremonial law um, and, uh, and only keep the moral law. But even that, I think um, a lot of New Testament Christians would um, assume that God's law is not binding on them. And, and I don't think we have much of a sense. So we look at things like tithing. We look at things like, um, you know, uh, the command to um, uh, adhere to a Sabbath, right? We look at the commands of not hoarding up our, uh, our finances. Um, we look at the commands about not going into debt and these sorts of things. And we think, oh, those are just good suggestions, guidelines, Right. And, and uh, so we, we don't really, as New Testament Christians, I don't think we don't have a sense of, of law. We don't feel as though we are governed by anything because we're saved by grace. So I think that's the big lie that a lot of us have bought into. And I think if you look back throughout church history and even as far back as the early church fathers, antinomianism, which just means anti-law, like against the law, no law, lawless, um, is a heresy that has been combated in the church and by the reformers and by the Puritans all through the ages. And yet we live in a very antinomian uh, Christian culture now where people would say, I'm not, I'm not under any sort of law. Yeah, I was going to say, the thing, whenever this topic comes up, in, like inevitably in a conversation, somebody at a round table or somebody in the conversation is going to throw out this idea um, that, Basically, that Paul says that we're not under, under the law, so why are you trying to make me live under it? Right. And so what would you say to somebody who just threw that out if you were sitting around? If Say I said that to you now. Yeah. So um, I would actually, because uh, there have been men who can say it a lot better than me, I would actually defer to um, Rush Dooney. So R.J. Rush Dooney wrote a, a great book called The Institutes of Biblical Law. He's um, he's written a lot of other books. I would recommend Liberty and Freedom as well by him or um, The Politics of uh, Pity. Um, but uh, the Institutes of Biblical Law is kind of his magnum opus. And it's uh, him kind of going through the Ten Commandments and talking about their applicability to Christians today. Um, but in his introduction to it, he, he says this. So it's a bit of a longer quote, so bear with me. But you just asked the question, aren't New Testament Christians not under law? They're under grace. And they would kind of quote Paul that way. So here's what uh, Rush Dooney has to say about that. Rush Dooney says, a central characteristic of the churches and of modern preaching and biblical teaching is antinomianism. We just talked about that. An anti-law position. The antinomian believes that faith frees a Christian from law so that he is not outside the law, but is rather dead to the law. 
There's no warrant whatsoever in Scripture for antinomianism. The expression dead to the law is indeed in Scripture, Galatians 2.9 and Romans 7.4, but it has reference to the believer in relationship to the atoning work of Christ as the believer's representative and substitute. The believer is dead to the law as an indictment a legal sentence of death against him, Christ having died for him, but the believer is alive to the law as the righteousness of God. The purpose of Christ's atoning work was to restore man to a position of covenant keeping instead of covenant breaking, to enable man to keep the law by freeing man from the law of sin and death, that righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, Romans 8, 4. Man is restored to a position of law keeping. The law, thus, has a position of centrality in man's indictment as a sentence of death against the man, the sinner, in man's redemption in that Christ died, who, although the perfect law keeper as the new Adam, died as man's substitute, and in man's sanctification in that man grows in grace as he grows in law keeping, for the law is the way of sanctification. So this is essentially saying that the um, role that the law continues to play in the life of the believer is that it is central to man's indictment, so it's used. I think James one talks about this to essentially show us that we're uh, that we are uh, breakers of the law and therefore in need of a savior, in need of Christ. In man's redemption, in that Christ died keeping the law and imputed his perfect uh, righteousness to us, and in man's sanctification. And so, and I think that that idea of sanctification is one that we neglect. We're not justified by the law. And that's exactly what Paul is saying when he says we're not under the law. But that doesn't mean that the law doesn't play a role in our sanctification. When you read some of the Psalms, like Psalm 19, Psalm 119, where it talks about how God's law is good and how it's, you know, it's lovely to us and it's beautiful to us and all that kind of stuff, then you, you realize that, you know, God is unchanging. He's immutable. He's just. His laws reflect his moral character. And so if God created these laws, they are timeless. They, they don't shift with culture. They don't change with culture. And so they reflect his character. And so they still have a role to play in our lives. The law was never able to justify. That's why we're not under the law. We're under Christ's perfect righteousness. But we the law does play a role in our sanctification. The other thing is that is to keep in mind that Jesus said, right in Matthew 5, 17, do, do, not think that, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And uh, uh, Greg Bonson in Theonomy and Christian Ethics, he kind of talks about how um, that word that we translate to fulfilled can uh, uh, is often thought of throughout the book of Matthew and throughout the uh, New Testament uh, can also be translated as established and confirmed. And so when if you read it through that lens, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to establish and confirm them, right? And then he becomes the fulfillment because he is the one who lives them perfectly. But Jesus says it over and over again, right? How, how much more clear do you need than, you know, not one word is going to pass away. Um, you know, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. Um, anyone who breaks the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be considered the least in the kingdom of God. Like Jesus by no means taught grace without law. In fact, Jesus was one of the, the most fiery preachers of the law. So the idea here is that the Old Testament sets up not only rules that govern our lives, but then the other thing that you have to consider as Christianity continues to grow is um, how should Christians live within a society? 
And if God's law was good for Israel, then God's law on how to conduct yourself civilly also applied to today. So when we start to consider things like what should be the punishment for, um, uh, you know, adultery, what should be the punishment for murder, what should be the punishment for breaking these kinds of laws? And for and, and the other thing to consider here is that um, the laws like the law that shaped Western culture as we know it is God's law. Like that's where we get this idea of don't steal, don't kill. All of these uh, laws come from the law of God. They're not just totalitarian. They're not just practical. It's not. It's not just a a sort of unitarian. Well, if people just went around killing each other, then we'd have less people to contribute to society. No, it started as an establishment of God's law, and we and our society has flourished because of it. But. Um, slowly but surely, as we've uh, rejected God's law, we've come up with different sorts of penalties. But I mean, by um, Greg Bonson also wrote a book uh, called "By What Standard?" And I guess that's the question, right? So when when you ask this question, should Christians consider the law valid for their lives today? Then the question is, if not, then by what standard should we live? By what standard should we run our families? By what standard should we run our um, public affairs? By what standard should we live out our lives and our jobs? By what standard should our governments govern the land? And as Christians, we have to say God's law. Like we, we have to say that's the standard. So um, that's kind of theonomy in a nutshell, but that's kind of this, this idea that uh, the, the law is still abiding in the life of the Christian today. It's interesting when I listen to you talk about that, we kind of live with the idea that we don't follow the law, but yet the law is still what sanctifies us by doing all the things that Jesus commanded us to do, which is all the, of the law in his terms, basically, right. is how we become sanctified. So when we honor our mother, mother's mother and father, when we don't covet, when we do all the things, the simple obediences that he he commanded to us in the Ten Commandments, yep. when we do those things, that's when we go closer and closer to what he looks like. And so because he's the perfect fulfillment of what he's already commanded. Right. It's just interesting that we don't we don't connect those dots in maybe it's just Western Christianity, like where we don't connect the two dots between Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of everything that's put down in Levitical law. Right. And, and so the, um, the, general, the general thought, I guess, towards, um, I, I guess I'll say it this way, the, the kind of default position of, uh, of evangelicals is God's law, like Old Testament laws, are only valid if they are repeated in the New Testament. Right. So any of the laws. So, you know, the New Testament reiterates a lot of the moral laws. And so um, most Christians by default, either because they've been taught or, like I said, just by default, will hold to some view that unless it's said in the New Testament, it's not abiding. It's not um, it's not something that we ought to live under. And so you have um, Christians who would throw out laws about tech, uh, about uh, tithing and, and these sorts of things. Right. And, and to that, there's a couple things I'd say. Like, number one, and, uh, and Bonson, this is, this is just funny. Um, 
Bonson, this is in uh, his book, uh, No Other Standard, and he says, appealing to a graphic biblical case law example that I hope will produce a formal, uh, no formal protests from uh, presbyteries around the world, let me state my deeply felt opinion that just because bestiality is not specifically condemned in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament, Leviticus 20, verses 15 and 16, there's no biblical reason to argue that it is no longer a civil crime in God's eyes, right? And so there, there, there's nothing in the New Testament that would tell us that bestiality is specifically something that Christians ought not to participate in. But intuitively, and this is what Bonson goes on to um, argue, is that intuitively, because the law of God is written on uh, a, an elect person's heart, we know that. And so we play this game where we say we're not under law, we're under grace, but really all that is is a justification to ourselves that we don't want to be under certain laws that we don't like. And so, um, so that's, that's part, of, part of it. But So if the default position is, unless the New Testament tells me, so what's the difference? What are we advocating for, right? So if, if the lie is that the Old Testament has nothing to, uh, to bind um, the, the conscience of the New Testament Christian, then what's the um, alternative? Uh, Joel McDermott of the American Vision, he defines theonomy this way. He says, it's the biblical teaching that the Mosaic law contains perpetual moral standards for living, including some judicial laws, which remain obligatory for Christians today. So the idea here is just simply that the Mosaic law contains in it perpetual moral standards. So if the law reflects God's moral character, then his moral character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so they are perpetual moral standards for living, which includes some of the judicial laws. And, uh, and so, I mean, some of the areas where I think um, we're, we're unjust in this area, I think, I think in a lot of ways it has to do with um, a lot of the punishments that we see for uh, crimes and, and that sort of thing. Um, but in, in kind of the individual lives of the believers, I think it, it just, it just um, this default position that unless the New Testament tells me to do it, I'm not going to do it, I think is just uh, a license for us. Um, because we have sinful hearts and we don't want to be accountable to God's law. Yeah, that's fair. We don't want we we want to honor the Ten Commandments, but we don't want to live them out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Basically, yeah. What, what it, uh, I think it'd be helpful if we if if we thought about the idea: what is the alternative? So yep. we're advocating that God's law should continue on and has continued on. That there's nothing prescriptive in, in the New Testament that says we shouldn't follow the Old Testament law. What would you? What would be the counter argument to that? What what would that look like? Well, I think um, again. So, I think that when Christians buy into the lie that the Old Testament law has nothing to do with their sanctification now or um, has no jurisdiction in their lives as New Testament Christians, I think that what we fall into is sort of this New Testament. Um, all we're called to do is love God and love neighbor, right? And, and, and you hear that. I mean, the, the New Testament is very clear that if you love God and love neighbor, then you fulfill all of the law, that all of the law can be summed up. Jesus says this himself, love God, love neighbor. The, the problem, though, is if we aren't going to the New Testament to define what love for God and love for neighbor looks like, then we're left in this sort of New Testament, again, 
subjectivity of what is love to us. And the New Testament does define love, right? We have the, the passage that everybody reads in, in, at weddings, 1 Corinthians uh, 13. Love is patient, it's kind, it's, you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, I, I think when we don't go back to the Old Testament to allow that to um, show us what love looks like, then um, and 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 some of the some of the laws that God lays out in under the old uh, in in the Old Testament um, help us to set parameters around what does love for neighbor look like? Because love for neighbor does look like meeting their physical needs. It does mean being hospitable. It means all those kinds of things. It also means things that maybe we don't think about because we're not going back into. The, it means not not lending to them with interest. It means um, it means uh, calling them out on their sin. It means being a witness if something unjust is happening in the in the household beside you. It it means all kinds of different things. Um, it it holds people accountable. It it, it uh, saves people from unjust. Like think about right now we're living in this Me Too culture, right? This this culture where all you have to do is accuse somebody of sexual misappropriation. Well, the Bible has something to say about that. The Bible says number one that if a false accusation is um, is brought and it's proven that the person's accusation is false then the person who makes the false accusation then gets penalized the same penalty that would have been given to the person if they were, um, uh, that they bore false testimony against. So if you accuse somebody of rape and it is proven that your accusation of rape is, is uh, simply that, an unfounded, untrue accusation, then you get the penalty for rape, which under God's law is the death penalty. So it, it's just, it. the other thing is like um, in our society, the government decides the fine or the, the penalty for, um, you know, if I sin against you, if I steal from you, right? then I have to pay the government a fine. I could go to jail, all that kind of stuff. It, it doesn't take into account the actual person who's the victim. You're the victim in that case. Biblical law would tell me that I have to pay you back with restitution, and the government doesn't get any of that money. It doesn't get any of that money. It's, it's a much more just system. And we think that some of this, you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, this, this sort of stuff, that the law was just in that it knows the, the wicked condition of my heart. It knows that if you cut off my hand, that I'm going to want to do more than cut off your hand. I'm going to want to cut off your head. So, so the idea of eye for eye and tooth for tooth is, is the idea of equal payment for what, uh, for the, what I, the, the damage that I've caused. So God's law has so much to teach us about these sorts of things. And because we don't spend any time, because we don't think that we're under the law, we, we lack the wisdom. And if you read Proverbs, Proverbs continually associates wisdom with fear of God and adherence to God's law. Well, if we're not studying Le- Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and we're not studying the law of God, and we aren't thinking about how those things apply to us today, then we lack the wisdom that Proverbs is telling us we have to have in order to live a, a life that pleases God. So, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a big deal. Yeah, I think I think this is where a lot of Christians drop the ball on in this whole idea with God's law is that we we don't want to apply all the things that we read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy to be 
exactly what we're supposed to do today. We can't eat pork. We can't play football. We right. can't do X, Y, and Z. When we fail to recognize what they're, what those laws were examples of how we actually play out God's law in their culture, what we need to be doing is doing the exact same thing in our, in our culture. What does it, what does it look like to live the 10 commandments out? Yep. So, and here's the other thing that I would say, because you were talking about not eating pork and stuff like that. We like, we're not sitting here advocating for a return to Judaism that just recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. We're not Messianic Jews by any stretch. I was just about to do the braid in my hair. <laughs> yeah, no, don't do that. What we are advocating, there are laws in the Old Testament that the New Testament um, go, does away with. There are ceremonial laws and there are things that, right? So the the dietary laws, I mean, in, in Acts, very clearly through a, a divine intervention of God to Peter, um, tells him that he can start eating, right? That the dietary laws no longer apply to him. And he uses that as a moment to teach him that Gentiles are not unclean. And so th- there's this recognition. So that, first of all, if you go through um, in the book of Leviticus, there's um, it talks about, I mean, it gets right down to what winged animals can they eat and what winged animals can't they eat. They weren't allowed to eat bats, but they're allowed to eat chickens, you know, like that kind of stuff. And it gets right down into the nitty gritty. But it's interesting, like with all that we know now, a lot of the stuff, even pigs, right? So think about who the Israelites were, where they were in the world, and what sort of sanitation they had. And the recognition that a lot of the animals that they're told not to eat are are the animals that carry a lot of diseases. And so it was God's way of preserving them before they had the medical understanding that certain animals would carry certain diseases. And, and one of the things about pigs and one of the things about pork— uh, pigs have um, diseases that are very um, communicable to humans, right? So there, there, there are practical reasons for God's law at that time, but they also pointed to something. And, and the, the whole idea of unclean animals pointed to the uncleanliness of Gentiles that God was eventually going to bring them in. So we're not under those laws anymore because they pointed to a new covenant reality that is now fulfilled. Same with all the ceremonial laws. Of course, we don't have to make sacrifices because Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. But there are other laws. There are laws like, you know, in Leviticus, it talks about how um, they ought to keep railings around the roof of their, their house, right? And you, it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, why would I need railings around the roof of my house? That seems silly. Well, I, at that time, they would spend time in the coolness of the night up on their their roof, and uh, and that was because they had flat roofs. Well, we don't have flat roofs, so what that the, what the principle of that law is is that you are responsible for the safety of the people that you bring into your home. That's part of what hospitality looks like under God's law. God's law means you invite them into your home. You are responsible for their safety. So when we take this, what we we say, hey. Why don't don't you make sure if you're inviting families over that you have, you know, child safety things in the sockets around your house? Um, You know, what? uh, how about not having really steep staircase with no railing, right? If you have really steep stairs and they happen to be old wood like ours was, I remember actually... Was it the first month we were in our new house and you almost fell down the stairs? I did not like your stairs. We had very, very very slippery hardwood stairs. And like those are steep stairs, right? And uh, and so one of the things, because, you know, uh, adhering to Old Testament law, we got a carpet runner to go up those stairs so they weren't as slippery. Just for Chris, (laughs) just to make sure Chris didn't fall off uh, the stairs. Um, And so there are general principles in the Old Testament law. 
And, and so this is another reason that, that Christians don't want to live under the law or want to say things like we're not under the law is because it takes some work to go and study some of these laws and think, how are they applicable to me today? And one of the areas that I think our churches um, really struggle with is uh, in the area of conflict resolution and re- relational reconciliation, right? And the Old Testament law actually has a lot to say about how you make things right with people within your covenant community that you've offended. And so, and and the law even lays out like like when to um, when to approach somebody, how to approach somebody, how to assess who's in the wrong, all that kind of stuff. And again, people don't want to go through the hard work of how does this apply, you know, thousands of years later. But in order to understand God's unchanging moral character that He embedded in His very law. And, and this is one of the reasons why there's so much relational turmoil in our churches. This is the reason that we split over carpet color because we're not listening to God's law on how to reconcile brother to brother. Um, so there's all kinds of practical implications to the law that we're just not getting because we've decided that we um, aren't under the law and that's okay. All right. So let me ask you, it's kind of the elephant in the room whenever you talk about the subject. What do you say about when people say about, well, what about civil government? Right. So yeah, um, whenever people hear, like if any of our listeners, if, if the term theonomy is new to anybody who's listening and they Google it, they're going to find a zillion blog posts and articles by uh, people condemning theonomy. And, and most of it is um, straw man arguments, to be completely honest with you. But one of the things that theonomists um, or anybody who starts talking about God's law, I mean, you know, when people ask me if I'm a theonomist, um, you know, generally, you know, you kind of do the, like, do I believe in God's law? Yes. <laughs> like, what's the alternative, right? Like what you asked me before. Um, but, uh, you know, I would have to, I would have to qualify a bunch of things and figure out what they mean by theonomist because um, there are different branches of it. One of the things that theonomists are often um, ac- accused of believing is that we're just trying to change society through um, legislation, right? That if only we could get this Christian law passed, then we will transform people. Mm. Well, theonomy's never believed that. There's a there's a law gospel distinction. We believe, like every Christian believes, that the gospel is the only thing that changes people. That Jesus is the only thing that changes anybody. But the question has to be asked: What? How should society run as Christians? What laws should we be in support of? What laws should we not be in support of? And so there is, there is, as we look at what laws apply to us and how they apply to us today, there is a whole lot of laws that talk about the governance and the structure of a nation. A lot of them talk about the, um, the, the boundaries of government. Right? This is one of the reasons that um, Christians ought to believe in small government and not no like go government oversight because we the truth is we live in a in a um, in a culture right now where we're, we, we pay hundreds and thousands of dollars in, in speeding tickets and, and all these kinds of things and none of those kinds of laws are anywhere in God's law all all that is is government overreach and and you know trying to control our lives and all that kind of stuff but the the question has to be asked where do we get the laws that ought to govern a civil society and again i would just simply ask if somebody says you know god's law has nothing to say to civil law i would just say okay then by what standard Right, we we did an episode last week on the the myth, or a couple of weeks ago on the myth of neutrality. So, are are you saying that laws should be neutral, 
because I would say there is no neutrality. So your law is honoring a God. Which God is it? Is it God's law or is it, you know, the, the, the God of the state, the God of the people? Is it self-governance? Like, what is it? It's not whether, but which. Which worldview is, is determining the laws in our society? So, yes, I do think that God's law should have something to say about what sort of laws we um, enact in our society. And the truth is, I mean, even simply through the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments tell us thou shall not murder, right? And so why should we be advocating against abortion? Because God's law says that the penalty for murder is death. And so God's law has something to say about these things. And the minute we start getting into, and, and I see Christians doing this all the time, they start debating abortion on the merits of, you know, when is life considered life? And at, you know, what, what point can, uh, you know, fetuses start to uh, feel pain? And the second you do that, you're going in to their system and trying to argue from there. No, abortion is wrong because God says you shall not murder. That's why it's wrong. And so as Christians, we have to be consistent on this. God, God has something to say. And, and the other thing is, is for any of you who are out there and you are fighting against abortion, you are doing all that kind of stuff, you have to also live a life that reflects what you're uh, asking other people. There's, there's one, uh, one verse that I kind of wanted to just touch on in this. And so some people might be sitting there and, and not liking what we're saying or something like that. I would just encourage you to um, read in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says, uh, actually, I'll back up just a little bit. Um, I'll start from verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by a swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they uh, make confident assertions. Now, here's the key. Verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the holy and the profane, for those who, for the unholy rather, and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Just an FYI, that whole list he's getting out of Exodus 21. So he's referring to the Old Testament law there. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul's saying a bunch of things here. Number one, he's saying that the, the law applies not just to those who are inside the church. He's, he's saying it applies to the unjust. It, it applies to those who are outside. Who were those? This is why I read it in context. Who were those who were teaching endless genealogies and the people who were devoting themselves to myth? That was the Judaizers who were not part of the covenant community of faith. And then he goes on to talk about how the law, if one uses it lawfully. Well, how does one use the law unlawfully? looks for it to justify them. How does, God, how does one use it lawfully? It applies the unchanging standards of God's law to those outside the church to call them to a standard of righteousness. And when they recognize that they cannot live up to that standard of righteousness, that brings them to the foot of the gospel, which is why he ends it in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, I mean, 
I, I think that, um, and, and I just kind of want to get to this quote. It's a bit of an extensive quote, but it's from our buddy Joe Boot. Um, and it's out of his book, The Mission of God. Mm-hmm. And he says, very few Christians in my experience, and sadly, even many trained theologians are not conversant with the Puritan perspective on the law and the gospel, despite the fact that their vision shaped our legal, political, social, and economic landscape. The liberties, freedoms, and rule of law that that remade much of Europe, England, and Scotland, essentially inventing North America, cultivating um, Christian consciousness in the three centuries following the Reformation are due to the direct application of Scripture to family, church, and state. Yet many of us remain blissfully ignorant to this fact. The theological amnesia has opened up a gulf between the old and new evangelicism with respect to the relationship between law and gospel as a consequence, the relationship between the gospel and culture. In a typical statement of Puritan doctrine, in his exposition on the Shorter Catechism of the Westminster Assembly on the Ten Commandments, Thomas Watson, a famed popular Puritan preacher in London, wrote that the moral law requires obedience but gives no strength. But the gospel gives strength. It bestows faith on the elect. It sweetens the law. It makes us serve God with delight. Having discussed the senses in which the law cannot, uh, the law cannot be seen or applied by the believer, he states, But though the moral law be thus far abolished, it remains a perpetual rule to believers. Though it not be their savior, it is their guide. Though it be not Um, irrelevant, a covenant of life, yet it is norma, a rule of life. Every Christian is bound to conform to it and write as exactly as he can after this copy. Do we then make void through the law, uh, void the law through faith? God forbid. Romans 3.31. Though a Christian is not under the condemning power of the law, yet he is under its commanding power. This I urge against the antinomians who say the moral law is abrogated to believers, which, as it contradicts scripture, so it is a key to open the door to all licentiousness. licentiousness. They who will not have the law to rule them shall never have the gospel to save them. Wow. And then Boot uh, comments on that. He says, because our forebears believed and practiced such integration of the law and the gospel, they necessarily integrated faith and life, biblical truth and culture making, and both was inevitable to them. If Christ is our savior and his law is the rule of life, then law and gospel must be proclaimed to every creature and put into practice in all areas of life. So I, I don't think that you can separate law and gospel. I think it, it's not like Old Testament was the law and then the gospel came along and, uh, and overrode the law. It's that the law was there, the gospel comes to empower people to live out the law. And so we still, we take the gospel as the transforming agent in people's lives. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But as we bring the gospel, right behind it, we bring the law, which then is the guide for how people live out their lives in every realm. So the biblical law, and and one of the other things, so some of our listeners who are, just just to make it really practical, because I I see you kind of smiling over there, but um, just to make it really practical, so um, some of our listeners might be business owners. One of the Old Testament laws talks about how uh, those who have fields 
um, shouldn't harvest the grains on the edge of their of their wheat fields. And part of the reason for that was so that the um, the poor in the community could come and harvest that grain themselves and make a little bit of bread for themselves. So it's interesting here. So there's a couple principles at play there. So if you are a business owner, number one, what God is telling you is not to squeeze every last bit of profit out of whatever it is that you're doing, but to allow for some way for people to come along and um, benefit from your your place of employment. And so um, one of the ways, I remember hearing this story somewhere, but I can't remember where. Um, one of the stories is a Christian man who owned a paper mill, right? So they were um, grinding um, wood into sawdust to eventually make into paper. And uh, at the end of the day, so they had all these machines that would collect all the sawdust and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, rather than employing a custodian, he would leave all of the, the wood shavings on the, on the um, factory floor and allow it to be left unlocked so that um, there was a couple guys in the community who would come in, sweep it up and take that extra um, uh, sawdust in and there was some place where they could recycle it or something like that. So you look at that and you think, okay, there's a lot going on there. Number one, the teaching not to squeeze every last bit of profit out of um, whatever it is that you're you're creating, but to leave some room for charity. Number two, it also creates if if every Christian in society is operating their business in that way, then we're actually creating work for people who are out of work. We're creating some level of um, sustenance for the people who uh, otherwise are relying on on the government for that, right? And so you look at one of the reasons that um, the welfare state is cyclical and people stay in a, a cyclical, I mean, and there's all kinds of factors there, but part of it is because that's not the Bible's prescription. That's not God's law coming to play on how we ought to govern society. God's law has a different prescription to how to get people out of poverty. And so there's all kind. I mean, I could go on and on about that sort of stuff. But there's 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 principles in God's law that are still binding on the hearts of believers, not because it's what saves us, but because once we're saved, it guides us. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I would want people to remember if they have listened to this whole episode. That's the that's the thing you need to take away is that God's law isn't what saves us; it's what guides us to live how God has asked us to live and yeah. commanded us to live in His world. So do the hard work, figure out how to live out the Ten Commandments in our in your in your daily lives this way and go about it because God's law has a lot to say about how we live our lives today. And that's really what this podcast is all about, teaching you to live and engage culture in a biblical with a biblical worldview. Well, that also means living in culture with a biblical worldview. Yeah, amen. So, I and I would just uh, I'll leave some people with a couple of resources. So I would say uh, read Theonomy and Christian Ethics by Greg Bonson, and um, if you're really studious, tackle um, R.J. Rush Dooney's Institutes of Biblical Law. Um, and if you just kind of want to get a holistic picture, um, the Mission of God by Joe Boot is is really honestly, if there was like a a textbook for the Rebel Alliance media, it would be The Mission of God by Joe, uh, Joe Boot. It's it's systematic, it's 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 so, so good. But he talks about this. He talks about the uh, applying uh, the standard of God's law to every sphere in your life. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that's super important. So uh, I'm, I'm good. I don't, I don't know how coherent all that was, but are you good, Pootie? Yeah, I'm, my mind is spinning because that was, ma- <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> so so right. good. 
All right, well, um, until we see you next time, uh, engage culture and make sure you're doing it with a biblical worldview. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel. Make sure you uh, share this episode out. Find us on Facebook, like us, like us, rate us, do all that stuff.